Like, you know, those drug company commercials that uh, convince you to talk to your doctor about the latest medication craze while they're, you know, showing you these scenes of, of beautiful places and attractive people while the voiceover is saying, you know, side effects may include dizziness, shortness of breath, memory loss, muscle weakness, and death. Right? Uh, and, and then just as the scene begins to fade, a little white box appears that reads actor portrayal, not actual patient. Or, or how about those injury lawyer commercials, you know, like the 1-800-ASK-GARY, right? And, and you're watching this, this innocent-looking motorist, you know, tell her tale of woe, but how, how Gary, who, whoever he is, uh, comes to the rescue and, and got all of her bills paid, you know? And just as she's saying it, you hear that person say real quickly, non Tony spokesperson, right? But, you know, as silly as all of that sounds, there's an important reason that they do that because in the United States there is such a thing as a truth in advertising statute uh, that mandates when it comes to marketing important things like new medical treatments or the hiring of legal representation that those types of commercials, at least technically, right, at least technically and legally can't misrepresent any part of what those things are claiming to be. So in other words, they're not supposed to, uh, to promote or uh, to advertise people or products that aren't what they appear. And, you know, that advice isn't just good for consumers. It's truly, it's absolutely vital when it comes to being a committed follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I hope you're going to see when we turn to our text this week in Psalm 50. Uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, we've been doing a long uh, extended look through the book of Psalms, and we just happen to be at Psalm 50 this week. So I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. This is Psalm 50, which is superscribed as a song of Asaph. And the psalmist writes, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who make a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to the Lord a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. 
You thought I was one like yourselves, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Amen. You know, uh, earlier this week I was texting back and forth with my good brother Ed Lee back there. And uh, he was asking if I was back from vacation and and back to work. And I, I told him, yeah, I was was back and starting on sermon prep for the week, and, and he texted back to me, make it inspiring. Right? Uh, and I hope it is. But, you know, the truth is, at least on the surface, today's psalm uh, and the, the main thrust of its message is not all that uplifting. Uh, it just, it's the next one in the text, so that's the one we've got. Uh, in fact, it's not even one that I honestly look forward to preaching because it's one of those messages that touches right to the heart, not only... Uh, of all the folks who hear it, but uh, to me as the deliverer. Because you know that old saying about, you know, when you point fingers out at other people, there are three more pointing back at you, right? Because it's a message from the Lord about the dangers of falling into spiritual insincerity and having a gradual loss of a genuine sense of delight in worship. Because the primary focus of Psalm 50 is to highlight hypocrisy in the lives of not pagans, but are professed believers like you and I. And it's a condition that can at times afflict all of us, whether you're a, a brand new parishioner or a seasoned pastor. It's kind of like the, the story of a, a woman who had just moved to the area and stopped in to see the local minister in town to ask him if he'd officiate at a funeral for her service dog named Jake, who had just died. And, you know, she explained what a a good dog he had been and how he had guided her in and out of lots of church services over the years uh, before he had died and that she wanted the pastor to officiate at the burial of Jake's ashes. As the pastor listened and sympathized and he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry uh, about the loss of your pet, but I, I can't do that, ma'am, he said. To, uh, he went on to explain, you know, that animals don't have uh, immortal souls like humans do and you know, all that stuff about our pets waiting for us in the beyond isn't really compatible with Christian beliefs. But the woman seemed so distraught and so insistent that the pastor said, well, why don't you try the, the Catholic priest downtown? Maybe, maybe he can do something for you guys. So the, the woman you know, dried her tears and she turned to leave and she said, all, all right, pastor. Or, you know, old Jake and I have never been inside a Catholic church before, so would you at least give me some advice? How much should I offer to, to pay the man? I was... I was thinking around, you know, $750 to $1,000. Before she could finish, so the pastor jumped up from behind his desk and said, well, hold on there, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize Jake was a Protestant. <laughs> okay, that one wasn't so good. But <laughs> but, you know, we can, we can laugh about that, but the truth is that religious... Uh, hypocrisy is not something that God takes lightly, right? Just look at the, the way our psalm started out. We read in verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The Hebrew actually reads El Elohim Yehovah. So those three glorious names of the God of Israel are recited right over the head of the psalm like 
how a king in uh, ancient times would capitalize their names in the heading over a royal proclamation where the, the names and the, the dignities of the monarchs are placed in the forefront. And so here the living God is, he's described as the almighty, the, the self-existent one, uh, as the only perfect object of our adoration and our affection. Uh, in fact, Charles Spurgeon said in this passage that uh, the dominion of Jehovah extends over the whole earth and therefore to all mankind is his decree directed. East and west are bidden to hear the God who makes his sun to rise on every quarter of the globe. And then he asked the rhetorical question, shall the summons of the great king be despised? Will we dare provoke him to anger by slighting his call? So the Lord is represented as summoning the, the whole earth to hear because he's got a declaration. A declaration about the kind of worship that he accepts and about the kind that he doesn't. That's why we read today in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. This is not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So, so far, so good, right? So, so God's saying there, when it, when it comes to sacrifices, uh, when it comes to the external rites and duties of religion, you've got it covered. Your worship services are beautiful. Your public persona is fantastic. In fact, if there was such a thing as the context and a contest for a model believer, you'd have the trophy. Your picture would be right on top. The only trouble is God is saying, all of that's just a disguise. It's just a mask, and I can see the real you in spite of all of that. That's why one commentator said here, God's charge, uh, his reproof is not for a failure in the external duties of public worship but it's the want of a proper spirit without which all other sacrifices would be vain and worthless. And namely, that's a sincere and humble and thankful heart. That's why we read God saying, I won't accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. And I love verse 12. He said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? As remember now, under the old covenant, God prescribed the offering of an animal sacrifice as the avenue for forgiveness. And so when a man would present his bull or his sheep or his goat as a sin offering, he would place his hands on the head of the animal that was being offered in the temple. And he would confess the sins that he had committed over it. And it was only then that the priest would kill the sacrifice and, and collect his blood that would be spilled against the altar. And the point of the ritual was so that the person offering the sacrifice would really understand tangibly, viscerally, that a substitute was taking their place. That the blame for the sin that should have been that person's to bear is now placed over on this innocent animal. But it was also a reminder that the ceremony was ultimately only a placeholder. It was only a stopgap until the Messiah came. It was never intended as an end unto itself, and it always pointed to God's larger plan of salvation. And so in these verses, God was trying to, uh, to get the people in Israel's day and, and for you and I today to realize that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. And our, our acts of devotion to God can't just be the cost of doing business. 
Uh, it, it can't be, well, I, I know I've committed this particular sin, so uh, afterwards I'll just go to confession. Uh, it can't be, I'm going to really party hard all weekend long, but I'll, I'll maybe catch some Christian television on Sunday night and get back on track. See how transactional that is? So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, this is a true story. I had a lady two, about two years ago on an Ash Wednesday service tell me uh, about a man that she knew growing up who, who cheated on his wife, uh, lied to her for years, but he absolutely refused to eat meat on Fridays during Lent. Okay, do you, do you hear that, right? So evidently, adultery is no problem as long as you avoid cheeseburgers on Fridays. Okay, that's the idea here, right? So the psalmist must have had that kind of fellow in mind when he wrote, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Because you see, that kind of spiritual, uh, spiritually inconsistent behavior isn't just condemned in the Old Testament. It's not just a legalistic thing. It came directly from the lips of our Lord. Uh, I know Pam will know this guy, uh, pastor and Bible teacher Warren Wearsby, uh, wrote of this. He said, Jesus is the only person in the Gospels who ever used the word hypocrite. The only time in the Gospels it happens is from the lips of our Lord. And he said, uh, Wearsby says this, the secular history of the first century gives us a clue as to what Jesus really meant when he used that choice of words uh, because biblical archaeologists tell us there was a Roman city uh, called Sephoris, which was just, a, it was in sight distance of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. Uh, and it housed a giant Greco-Roman amphitheater where these uh, elaborate stage productions were put on by men called hypocrites. Hypocrites, that literally meant someone who interpreted from underneath. Okay, and it makes sense when you realize that these men wore these large painted masks to disguise their personal identity, and so the audience could recognize the characters that each one of them was portraying. Sometimes the same actor would have to portray uh, several characters in one show. And so they, they interpreted the story to this waiting audience from underneath these masks. Right? So the word hypocrite literally means someone who's acting in a play. And Jesus didn't want his followers then or us now to live as phonies behind a mask. Right? So those of you who just uh, gone through the last year with me in our, our study through Matthew and Wednesday, where's my Wednesday night Bible study people? Right? You remember Matthew 23 contains some of the harshest words ever recorded from the lips of Jesus who... If you remember, when he was only just a few days from going to the cross, spent all of his final teaching opportunities debating with the fake religious leaders and warning his disciples against their corrupting influences. And Matthew 23 tells us, and Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're in the place of authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then he, he turned his attention. He spoke directly uh, to those religious leaders. Uh, and he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, another is a, a convert or, or a, a new believer. And when he becomes a, a proselyte or a new believer, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe your mint, and dill and cumin, all those little garden herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's pretty tough language from Jesus, isn't it? And remember, Jesus had compassion on prostitutes and, and tax collectors, and he was a friend of all kinds of sinners, but the one thing that aroused his righteous indignation uh, right from the pit of his heart was religious hypocrisy uh, and, and holier-than-thou attitudes that had prevented those men from knowing God or from teaching others about him. That's why he kind of wrapped it up in, in Matthew 23. He said, uh, said of those men, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces because they neither enter themselves nor allow others to go in. Uh, and think about this just for a minute, you know, kind of in light of, of his words and, and the actors that we talked about. Those guys on the stage, those hypocrites, those actors, they were only wearing a mask just for a really short time. And they were just playing a role for entertainment. And when their performance was over, they took the masks off. They weren't pretending anymore. But can, can you and I always say the same thing? And I'm, I'm pointing lots of fingers back at me, right? Can I, can I say the same thing? Uh, or will it be that the next time maybe that we tell someone that we're a Christian, a little sign will light up on our forehead that says actor portrayal, right? Or maybe an angelic voice will interrupt our witness to blurt out non-Christian spokesperson, right? And you know, that's a large part of why the world ignores our message and our master. They're not even sure we believe what we say when too much of our modern church has become fake. When too much of the modern church seeks the pursuit of money as to be more important than souls. When salvation takes a back seat to entertainment. And when personal comforts are more important than public worship. Like if you hear somebody say, oh, I just can't sit through an hour service in that sanctuary, it's too cold. But they'll see you pack a, a sweater or a jacket to go to a two and a half hour movie at the theater, right? Or, or, or somebody will say, uh, oh, you missed church this morning, you, you were too, too sick to go, but you weren't too sick to eat three meals out at a restaurant the rest of the day, okay? Uh, or, or even worse, self-proclaimed Christians who cast their votes without discernment. Right? Because honestly, and we, we can be honest with one another, right? This is the place to be honest. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and you cast your ballot for a platform or a candidate that supports abortion over adoption, that supports Islam over Israel, that supports homosexuality over holy matrimony, that promotes socialism over Christian stewardship, truthfully, to borrow a phrase from Jacques Foxworthy, you might be a hypocrite. Right, And that's serious. Because you see, this is the church that the world around us is seeing. If we're not being consistent witnesses, what are we showing folks? Now thankfully, that doesn't happen in this congregation. We're, we're the exception to the rule and, and that's because the Holy Spirit is here and, and it's moving and we're feeling God's presence. But too much of the faith out there in the world has become shallow and, and self-seeking and self-centered. It's all fluff. Uh, and it only ever succeeds in satisfying our emotional needs and our misplaced guilt without ever actually calling us to live out our lives in covenant with and commitment to God. And that's sad. And that's wrong because, brothers and sisters, 
uh, as Christians, we need to be growing like we are here. We need to be learning like we're doing in Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study and here in worship. We should be developing a deeper relationship with Jesus and not just to be saved, as important as that is, but to be sanctified. Because, brothers and sisters, the costly sacrifice of Christ has to, to move us to sacrifice control of our lives and surrender ourselves to his love and direction. And, and to do that takes a hard look at ourselves and a heart move to repentance. The, the sacrifice that takes our place has to mean something. And in the worldly church uh, in America, I'm not sure that it does anymore. We keep ourselves too distant from it. Uh, even within the walls of church sometimes. One author said in uh, the country now there's a modern, new age, bloodless gospel being preached all over the world today by many so-called Christians, which instead of exalting Jesus as suffering Savior, replaces it with a humanistic self-atonement dependent on our own works and merits, making salvation attainable, Listen to how he finishes it. By what man does for God rather than what God did for man. Right? So in the words of Psalm 50 today, uh, because of that, to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Uh, or as Jesus put it in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But see, that kind of message has all but disappeared from our 21st century pulpits because, to be honest, it doesn't uh, uh, win many friends or fill many seats, does it? But you know, the truth rarely does. And just think about it for a minute. What did the people and religious leaders of Jesus' day, how did they respond when Jesus gave that message that we read, right? Did they say, oh, Jesus, you're right. Uh, we repent. Uh, thanks for setting us straight and getting us on the right track. No, uh, they were so angry they arranged to have him arrested. And they put him through a mock trial and they demanded that the Romans crucify him. That's why one author said, I think, I think Cle President Cleveland said this, uh, the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you mad. Right? The truth will set you free, but first it'll make you mad. And I tend to think he was right. Because the truth is, the teaching of the cross is offensive. Offensive because the cross calls us to point those fingers at ourselves, to die to ourselves and to offer up all that we are to the glory of God, who's justified us by his grace as a gift through redemption in Jesus Christ. So we can, in the words of verse 14, that they offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform our vows to the Most High. And then God will say, call on me in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver you, and you'll glorify me, and I'll show you the salvation of God. That salvation is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in his death on our behalf, because that's where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature. That's where it's laid bare for us with no facade, no pretense, that God is just, so he has to condemn the hypocrisy of our sins. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God is love. So he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect sinless life and goes to the cross where all the justice and the wrath of God that I deserve is thrown down on him instead so that he could credit me with his perfect righteousness. Remember, that's what the reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange, where on Mount Calvary, the worst about me is laid on Christ and, and the best about him, uh, his perfect act of obedience, his sinless life is now graciously applied to me. 
And to you too, if you're, if you're in Christ. That perfect sacrifice, not in the flesh of bulls or of goats, but as, as Dee sang for us so beautifully this morning, in the precious blood of the Lamb. Amen? Let's pray together.